Welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. Uh, my name is Dora Gordon. I'm one of the regular panellists and I'm also the Liberal Democrat uh, parliamentary candidate in Sheffield Hallam. And I'm here with Sam Alhamdani, who is another of our panellists. Sam, how are you? Uh, very good, thank you. Um, so we are here to break a habit of the podcast and talk about social media. Um, this has come out of a discussion that we sort of had on the podcast WhatsApp group. And um, Sam, I don't know, do you want to sort of talk through a little bit? And I think the first thing to say is that this is not going to be a podcast about social media campaigning, uh, because this is a podcast that firmly believes that knocking on doors and delivering leaflets is the way to win elections. Um, so, Sam, what, what is it going to be about? Well, it started off by talking about an article, so it's polling from John Curtis, talking about how Britain was increasingly liberal, uh, in, increasingly sane in many ways, um, uh, but then looking at, at the same time, it being very polarised, and then you know, the conversation went on, how that plays out on social media, and what impacts that has for us as people who are involved in politics and for political discourse, you know, what that extreme kind of magnification does uh, and how you how you cope with that and, and what you do with that. Yeah, and we thought that this would be quite an interesting week to do it as well, because obviously there's been, uh, for those of us that are on Twitter, which I suspect is a disproportionate share of podcast listeners uh, compared to the majority of the population, um, we've obviously seen the buyout of Twitter by Elon Musk, the sort of... Um, you know, unbanning of various sort of far right voices that have been previously banned from the platform, um, discussion about what free speech means, and also potentially the sort of imminent collapse of Twitter, um, you know, migration of a few people to Mastodon. I've set up a Mastodon account. I have to say I don't use it that much, but I do have one. Um, and, you know, so I think it, we thought we thought it was a sort of good moment to just pause a little bit and discuss sort of what social media has meant for politics and how it's shaped political discourse over the last over the last few years. Um, and I think this this kind of point about the sort of liberalism of the general public and the sort of increasingly liberal views is a really interesting one, because I think there is a real tendency on Twitter. And I think especially the way sort of things get go viral and get quote tweeted to sort of magnify some of these really extreme voices, aren't there? Uh, it absolutely is. I mean, the classic example, so just we've just had the reinstatement of Donald Trump on Twitter from a poll, which I didn't see the final result. But when I did look at it um, about a day before it ended was on 52% to 48%, which oh, is no, brilliant. the cursed ratio. Exactly. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think... That uh, the the quote underneath it, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, the voice of the people is is the voice of, of God. Um, it, it, but except it, that's not. It's it's the a self-selecting voice and a self-selecting group of people who have chosen to interact on that specific topic that they feel passionately about enough to feel that they have to click on it. So that's not the voice of the people. Uh, I, part of me then goes, that is the problem of democracy. Mm. It is a self-selecting group of people. Yeah, but I think this this is the key point, isn't it? Because it's that salience point where 
sort of there are lots of things that people have opinions about, but that won't necessarily be the things that they um, that they will that will drive their voting behaviour. And so, you know, a sort of opinion poll evidence that sort of says, well, this percent of people believe this, but then they're actually voting for a party that believes other things. You know, you can point to the kind of salience issue. But then what people talk about on social media will be defined by the issues that they individually find most interesting, which almost means that sort of social media discussion is driven by the issues that people feel really passionate about, um, which will often not be the issues that drive mainstream voting behaviour, even if the sort of mainstream voters might, you know, whether they agree or disagree that, you know, those won't be the issues that that will sort of drive discourse. You know, people don't really go on Twitter very often to kind of talk about the generalised state of the economy and gas prices. But actually, that will be what drives voting behaviour or they might do, but it will only be for a kind of very short spike whenever there's a sort of change in those prices, whereas actually that sort of underlying impression will be what drives the voting behaviour. So I think there is a really interesting kind of point there about, you know, people will talk about the issues that they really care about, but often you'll have a sort of an issue which will matter hugely to a small group of people, which most people won't actually be that bothered by. And I think sort of there's a real challenge for politicians, aren't there, isn't there, about sort of you don't want to dismiss those issues as unimportant because, you know, I think probably the classic example of the moment would be the sort of trans rights issue where, so the US Republicans just tried to run a really big campaign on trans rights and sort of opposition to trans rights. And it turned out that the public was really not that interested, which is why the, one of the reasons why the Democrats did a lot better than expected. Mm. But, you know, you don't want to dismiss that as an unimportant issue, because if you are trans, then it's a hugely important issue. But I think that, you know, because of that, you know, because it matters so much to a sort of relatively small group of people, it can sort of dominate the Twitter discussion in a way that isn't really relevant to the majority of people. And I think if you listen to it too hard, can lead you astray. And I think it's interesting that, so Twitter is, it has this reputation of being the place where people go to fight, basically. Um, and I think a large part of that is just the, the basics of discourse on Twitter are restricted by how much you can say. You can't have a thorough conversation on Twitter. It's designed to not have thorough conversations. It's designed for you to just shout your point in the fewest number of words possible uh, and, and then go away. So the, the system defines, in part, the way that people engage with it. And so it, it, by doing that, it's going to go, I only want you to discuss the things that you can shout about quickly and angrily uh, and not have you have reasonable, intelligent, thoughtful conversations with people where you discover the things that we have more in common. Absolutely. And I think there's a really interesting thing on Twitter, especially as well, about this kind of taking everything in bad faith, where, you know, if there's one way that your words can be twisted to mean something that you obviously didn't mean, but which makes you look awful, somebody is bound to sort of quote tweet you and, and you know, turn it into, oh, this is what you meant. And suddenly it's like thousands of people have seen it beyond that context, mm. um, which just, and I think it is really important to remember that that's not how normal people think. You know, normal people will try to give you a fair hearing and we'll try to, you know, if it's obvious that what you what you meant, but you were a bit clumsy about it, they'll take what you meant. 
And I think there is a real thing where like it's really easy to get in the habit of kind of talking and writing defensively if you spend too much time on Twitter, sure. where actually that isn't at all how normal people think. Um, but I think also where, you know, a desire to kind of talk to your in-group can kind of lead you into quite an extreme position at the expense of the sort of relatively popular positions, which you wind up not talking about. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's one of the, I, I'm not going to go into the debate on it, but just to, to do out the comparison, you know, if you are on Twitter, you will probably have seen a flame war about, especially if you're involved in politics, about trans rights. Now, you, know, you can't have avoided it. But if you go out and talk to people on the doorsteps, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. It doesn't come up. Uh, and if you were to kind of discuss it, people would just kind of go, oh, yeah, I mean, they, they might have an, an opinion on it and it might be your opinion or it might not be. But it's likely, you know, you would have to force that out of somebody to have a discussion on it. I think that that's a really interesting example, because the only time it's come up with any degree of frequency for me on doorsteps was when there was that row sort of in. I think it was like February or March last year when, you know, there was this thing of sort of asking various Labour politicians on TV to define a woman. And um, the gen so it started coming up on doorsteps, but not because people felt strongly about the answer, but because they were really confused about why everyone was talking about this. So I think one of the things that is really interesting is this kind of revol almost revolving sort of echo chamber where, you know, journalists are on Twitter and therefore journalists talk about, ask politicians about the questions that are being discussed on Twitter, which, you know, then the general public that is not terminally online is listening to this on the radio being like, what? I don't understand. Why is this an issue? Um, and so it is, yeah, it, it's, it can be really challenging to step away from it and, and kind of think about how we talk to voters in a way that sort of reflects voters' priorities rather than the sort of, the bubble, the bubble priorities almost. Um, and I think you had a really interesting example as well of that, the the sort of Jimmy Savile example, which is, is probably a good one to... Yeah, just to just to kind of put across how quickly and, and how much emphasis gets put on individual voices uh, from the extreme. So uh, a couple of years ago, on, well, it was last year, I think, Boris Johnson, uh, quite famously in, in Prime Minister's Questions, I think it was, cited uh, or made reference to Keir Starmer um, not prosecuting Jimmy Savile, which is just wrong. Um, and let's be absolutely clear about that. That story came from a uh, man who is on social media. He lives in the next village to me. He is uh, sort of online campaigner, self-styled, um, very aggressive, very abusive. And he has just used that, came up with that and used it as a tool to beat the local Labour Party with, and in fact, kind of all, polit all politicians with the same brush. And it went from a man in the village next to me screaming into the void on social media to the Prime Minister saying it and, tr and trying to defend it as a reasonable point of view in Parliament. And it is, if you go through the stuff, it's nonsense. It really is. Um, but I think it's interesting because it, it turned out to be a real misstep by Boris Johnson. Obviously, morally goes without saying, but also politically, it was a real misstep because, you know, it led to the resignation of his close aide, Manira Mirza, 
Um, and, you know, it was one more of the many, many steps that went from the sort of Owen Patterson, um, you know, trying to get Owen Patterson off the hook, you know, and then gradually descended step by step, you know, into his eventual resignation. And this was, you know, one of the steps that sort of further undermined his position and his authority. And I think it is that it's a sort of, it's very common to talk about the left being sort of social media brained and kind of going down social media rabbit holes and sort of, um, but actually I think it's really important to remember the right does it as well. And sort of, I think actually this kind of comes back to the sort of initial conversation we had that brought us into deciding to make the podcast is that, you know, you made the point that there's often a sort of assumption that the Overton window has sort of moved to the right. Whereas actually that's, that's almost not the case. It's just that the discourse has become Twitter brained. Yeah. Yeah, it has. And uh, so it's, I mean, the perfect example. And I think you could ask any sort of activist Lib Dem, especially, you know, if you're, if you're one of the people out there who's producing focuses and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. Just the difference between what you put in a focus newsletter as what you put in a, in a uh, on Twitter there's no comparison. Like, I genuinely, um, and it is, there is a very specific Twitter thing. Like, I'm very different on Facebook as to Twitter. And that just gives you an indication of how much it's the forum that's determining the way Absolutely. that you're thinking about things. Into my local kind of Facebook groups, if I dreamt of putting stuff about uh, uh, kind of just even really political stuff, people aren't interested. You know, even if it's national politics that's really quite relevant, people aren't interested. They want to know the things that are day to day affecting them. And that difference in discourse is exactly what you just talked about there. You know, if if you were to base any of your campaigning on just what you get from social media, you just campaign on the wrong things. And this is what part of the reason, you know, we've said before, you can't win an election on social media partly because you'd be talking about the wrong thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think talking in the wrong way as well, I think there's there's a real thing where um, it's almost this like slight censoriousness to social media where, where you really kind of police the way that people are talking, which leads to people talking in a way that, you know, is just not how you talk in real life. Um, and I think there's, you know, the sort of low stakes example that, you know, I would use is that sort of on social media, you, you know, you talk about the kind of the climate and biodiversity emergency or the climate and ecological emergency, whereas normal people will talk about the environment. And sort of we've, you know, that's been tested extensively and found that talking about the environment is much more popular and will, you know, get your, imp- you know, your impression across, your point across much better. But actually, we, you know, there can be a tendency to not do it because, you know, because you're sort of you've almost like shaped your brain and trained your brain to kind of think in a in a different way. So I think that that kind of making sure that you consciously get out of that sort of social media brain space, you know, yeah. when kind of engaging with voters is really important. Yeah, I, I have to say I write um, preemptively, defensively whenever I'm on social media. So because I know that there's people who are waiting to catch me out. And so if they push a point I don't think how do I respond to the point I kind of think well what do you want me to say how do I not say that mm, and absolutely. how do I and it, how do I still make my point and it's a really you know your brain is getting into a really complicated way of working just to have a conversation yeah you, you've had four steps of the conversation internally before you make a reply and that's no way to speak to real people 
Mm, you know, just absolutely. imagine doing that on yeah. the doorstep. You, you're just having a chat with somebody and you're like, oh, what do they actually mean though? Do they really mean what they're <laughs> saying? Do they want me to say? Just, yeah. and it's inhuman. It, it's changing the way that you, you process things as a human being. And the more that you practice that, because we are we are beings of habit we you know it, it takes whatever it is a thousand hours of practice to become a genius in in, in yeah. a, or an expert in a given topic well by going on social media for those thousand hours you've just oh trained God, yourself to be to a think genius how many thousands hours i've spent training myself on social uh, media exactly and you've trained yourself to be an expert in not having reasonable conversations mm-hmm. Hello, John from the Lib Dem Podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Reigns. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem Foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Prater Reigns website at praterains.co.uk slash liberal dash democrats you know there are plus points and i think we're being really down on it but there are real plus points like for example you know on twitter you get very good at writing concisely which is a really important skill um and you know you also get to talk to people that have real expertise in like a whole range of policy areas and like if you actually try to do it like one of the things i've really tried to do in the last kind of year or so let's make sure I'm following a sort of much broader range of people. So like actively seeking out, you know, sort of right wing commentators and, um, you know, and, and sort of labor commentators, you know, who I would often disagree with and like finding some of the sort of more thoughtful people, um, you know, from those, those traditions and following them, because it is that, you know, it's that way to kind of expose yourself to different arguments, to different ways of thinking, and you know, I I learn a huge amount from it. I, I gain like I do spend a lot of time online. Um, I think probably partly because I've got small children, and so I, I can very rarely leave the house, and therefore online is how I interact with people. Mm. Um, but you know, I have I've gained a huge amount from it. So I, I don't I don't think we should be too down on social media, and there are loads of positives to it. But I think there is a really interesting way in which it's kind of shaped our discourse. Um, it will be interesting. You mentioned Mastodon. It'll be interesting because that's been set up in a way which has you can have slight more controlled rules around yeah. sections of it. And it'll be interesting to see. We talked about the way that Twitter frames the conversation. If that helps people to have more thoughtful conversations and engage with social media in the way that you were just talking about engaging with it, which is absolutely a positive yeah. And the, I mean, the sort of the one of the things that I like about Mastodon so far is that the character limit is longer. Um, so you can sort of do much longer. Well, I mean, basically twice as long. I think it's, it's roughly yeah. twice as long. So you can have a slightly more formed thought. I think the other thing that's quite interesting, though, is, you know, I, I've really noticed an expansion in the last couple of weeks. You know, it, it started to move, but then really accelerated in the last couple of weeks since the must buyout of people starting sub substacks. And, you know, is that going to lead to the, you know, recreation of the blogosphere? Because the blogosphere was fantastic um but you know it then you know google killed google reader and you know then twitter sort of took over and you know the blog essentially 
um, has been on life support ever since. But, you know, we've then seen sort of Substack starting up again, which is a sort of really interesting form of for, forum for sort of longer form writing. Um, yeah. So, you know, are we going to see that increase again? You have to promise not to tell Richard Kemp that the blog has died, though, because he's kept I didn't, the flame. I didn't say it died. I said it was on life support. <laughs> um, kept alive by stalwarts such as um, this podcast's very own Richard Kemp. Exactly. Um, um, no, I mean, I have to say, I, I've, I've never stopped reading blogs and I still use RSS readers and, and things like that. But, you know, this is the, this sort of as soon as Google Reader died, you know, fewer people started doing that. Yeah. But, you know, email newsletters starting again, you know, is that going to lead to a sort of revival of blogs and longer form writing, which, you know, I personally, I think would be great because I loved blogs and I was very, very sad when Google Reader did its best to kill them. Hmm. Yes. Uh, anyway, we I think we're, we're wandering into a, a, a yeah. niche of technology that you and I really appreciate. Yes. Possibly <laughs> not everyone. Yeah. Um, I would be good to just, I mean, I, I quite like to just go through a few. I went back to, um, I said at the start of the podcast, it was John Curtis uh, and, and it's Victoria Ratti uh, looking at the British Social Attitude Survey. And it's really interesting just looking at a few of the Kind of issues that were brought up on that just to give those kind of more solid examples of kind of what people think are important and what maybe aren't and so they talked about um proportion like proportion of britons who view immigration as having a positive economic impact has increased from 20 percent in 2011 uh to a half over 50 percent in wow. 10 years that's a massive shift but like if you were to go on to twitter and and try and sort of take a sample of the discourse that's on there there's no way you have any idea that that was the case um and it is and and we talked about it's not just an issue but the kind of salience of that issue how how much people rate it you know if you look at the kind of YouGov polling of important issues immigration stays really high and i think i have a natural assumption to kind of go stay high because people don't like it but it's really interesting to take that comparison and say, oh, actually, for some people, it's really high because it's in, it's also a good thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a really interesting framing thing with immigration as well, actually, because I've got some stats up, which I saw on, on Twitter um, yesterday, I think it was over the weekend, um, where the um, how you frame it makes such a big difference. So just to kind of go through them, the sort of um, you know, net view on whether immigration has enriched or undermined society. It's slightly above zero, so it's slightly positive, so very, very slightly so, though. Um, should we have more immigration? Actually, that is quite negative. So the majority of people think we shouldn't. But actually, then if you ask, you know, should we have more immigra immigration in order to help our economic recovery, then it flips positive again. So I think that framing of like, why do we want more immigration? Why should we have more immigration? Really makes a difference in how many people support it. Um, but then another sort of, um, you know, interesting comparison is the difference between that sort of net immigration has enriched society figure versus has it been good for society, where significantly more people think it's in, you know, quote, enriched, unquote, society than think it's been good for society. So there's presumably some people who think that it's enriched society, but that that's a bad thing. Um, so I think there's that that real point about like how you frame this stuff really, really matters. Mm, and yeah. I think framing it in a way that, you know, will resonate with normal people versus, you know, the way that will resonate with social social media. Yeah. I the 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 sort of on the um immigration issue and, and around Brexit, 
it's really so uh, and and the polarization that you see on social media you know uh, uh, 40% of leavers in the british social attitude survey think that um, immigration has undermined british culture two thirds two thirds of remainers think that it's enriched Britain's cultural life and that's that kind of really then you know once you're looking at specific groups and then once you're into that so so and then so for people who wouldn't necessarily I mean not that there was a lot of people it was a very divisive and most people jumped to one side or the other but that seeing people on are you a Brexiteer are you a Remainer and then is it important to you or is it not and like for those people in the middle they're being there's no there's no discussion about that for them and actually that's probably because it's not necessarily very salient and they're they're not good to be on twitter shouting about it but also those are the people that we need to be winning over because you know the person who believes that immigration has been a disaster for this country is never going to be the person who you know they're, they're very unlikely to be won over you know they might sort of grudgingly accept that we need you know would like more nurses but you know they're never going to be won over Whereas actually those people in the middle are the ones that we really need to be talking to. So kind of understanding what resonates with those people. And that's the kind of focus group evidence. It's the um, it's the sort of polling evidence and really kind of getting into sort of that mindset. I mean, and I think there's also this point around, you know, what news those people are getting and where they sort of because I think people who are heavily involved in politics and heavy social media users will get a lot of their news from social media whereas you know most people don't most people get their news from the tv from the radio from like headlines that they might see as they're walking past the newspaper in a shop or increasingly they're getting it from social media but from different social media sources so if you're sort of under 25 there's a decent chance you get a lot of your news from tiktok talk but like i am not starting a tiktok account and you know I, neither are you we're both way too old and you know <laughs> it's not that type of forum um i and i think it's interesting the way that media is then changing the way that it produces stuff in order to do that talk tv mm-hmm. i mean i had frankly forgotten that talk tv existed quite mercifully yeah. for me but they they if you listen to uh, what their marketing strategy is they're kind of they're almost a tv channel as an adjunct to Mm. having social media you know they fill up the channel with whatever but basically all they're doing is filming enough stuff to be able to put viral clips onto social media um and and they're stoking you know they're playing to that because they 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 will record stuff for 24 hours the most controversial things that will most stir opinion and we all know this about social media but it's you know really um I mean, worrying in some respects, but, you know, thought provoking to kind of look at the way that media is changing the way it presents itself so that it can play into that on social media, so that it can have that impact and how that is then going to be reflected in what you as a politician think seems to be important. Mm. And meanwhile, all the sort of normal voters are being like, hey, wait, why is everyone suddenly talking about the definition of a woman? I don't understand. (laughs) So it's just that way it leaves normal voters behind. Yeah. Um, so I think to be honest, I, I I think the main thing that we we wanted to sort of cover as we come to an end was sort of suggestions for how you make sure that you you know you can stay in because I think most of us who are sort of heavy social media users and in politics enjoy social media. It's how we talk to a lot of our friends. You know, we all want to keep doing it. 
how do we do that while not letting it kind of seep into our campaigning and not um um you know making sure that we're we're staying relevant and focused on on sort of normal voters and, and winning elections i mean i think one of the most important things and and john potter will would uh, curse us to the skies if this was not the first is say go on the doorsteps and talk to people because the people you need to vote for you are the people who are in the street outside your house almost you know that that are actually dealing with stuff on a day-to-day basis and some of them will be on twitter but most of them you won't actually be engaging with on in that way um and it's them who are going to tell you what's important right now um and it's them who are going to ground you when you just come out of that conversation you know if you just get it's really easy i do it all the time i get buried into a kind of really argumentative thing and really mm-hmm. kind of like tussling with somebody it's probably pointless because they've got made their own mind up anyway but still you know we all enjoy banging our head against a wall sometimes yeah. um and then you know going out and talking to somebody and then and just realizing that actually that's that was irrelevant to it for them it is not salient they are part of that you know 40 50 percent of people who are on a lot of things in the middle ground and it's working out what are those middle ground things that we actually engage with really really well already can we make a connection with and what are the few kind of like things that they think are really important that might take a bit more work to make that connection with but that that connection really can be there you know and and talking to people on the doorstep even people who disagree you know or i'm doing a survey at the moment there's a lot of people ticking that immigration box but on the doorstep i can have a conversation with them about why it's important and the questions you were saying earlier about you know actually is it important because it's enriching or is is it enriching on one hand but there's difficulties that come with it and having a reasonable conversation that doesn't make someone feel stupid because they disagree with you, you know, social media really does that thing of like it makes like you're you say seem like you're telling the other person that they're stupid or evil one or the yeah. other yeah. yeah i think there's a really interesting point as well about like most people understand that they aren't going to agree with a politician on everything and if you are standing up for them on the issues that they care about, they will vote for you, despite the fact they might disagree with you on a lot of issues. And even if they do actually think they're quite important. And I think there was an example. Um, I think it was the I think it was on the New Statesman podcast during the Shropshire by-election. They were sort of talking about how they'd been following Tim Farron around um, canvassing and had come across a voter who was like extremely anti-immigration but was voting Lib Dem because he thought that, you know, the Lib Dems were in a better place to, you know, that we'd been talking about a lot of issues that mattered, you know, about the way that the Conservatives had been taking that area for granted, about some of the issues that we were talking about around farming. And he was thinking, well, actually, you know, this is going to be the right choice for me and my community, even if I don't agree with them on everything. So I think there there is also like, actually, if you're talking about the issues that sort of really matter to people, they will accept you disagreeing with them on issues that might be important to you. So it's absolutely not that we should be compromising our values. It's that, or even that we should be trying to hide them somehow in order to kind of trick people into voting. It's absolutely not that. It's that if we're talking about the issues that matter to people, then even some of the people that don't necessarily take, you know, A, I think will be then sort of more appealing to some of those, you know, those people who, you know, might agree with us, but don't have it as a particularly high salience. But actually, we might also be able to kind of win some votes from the people who might disagree with us on those issues, um, but who um, 
but who will see the kind of core bread and butter issues as more important. And I think that's what the Conservatives did very successfully in the last election, where they were able to win the votes of a lot of people that were sort of quite liberal minded, um, but who really didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister and who wanted Brexit to go away. There's some really interesting work There's a uh, to recommend another podcast, um, You Are Not So Smart. And the, the, it's a very good podcast. And it did a lot of, uh, they did uh, uh, an episode on how much agreeing with a politician makes you likely to vote for them. And they did some work where they gave people a uh, politician who agreed with them 100% of the time. And actually, they were less trustworthy, viewed by people as less trustworthy than someone you disagreed with 10 to 30% of the time. And they, Amazing, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. So you I think that be... makes sense as well, isn't it? Because like, if you agree with someone on everything, then it, you know, it, it looks a little bit like, oh, do they really believe that, or are they just telling me they believe that to try and win my vote? So yeah, yeah. So looks that a bit clear sounds... window is you should be disagreeing on about a quarter of the stuff with the people who are voting for you. That's okay. a good proportion. Okay, right. I'm going to go out there and uh, disagree with some voters on purpose. <laughs> Don't worry, Lib Dem HQ. I am not actually going to do that. Uh, (laughs) I think there's also you know it's also about sort of talking to some of the you know regular people in your life as well and kind of um you know people who aren't in politics we all have some friends who aren't in politics and that's to be encouraged and kind of thinking about how they talk and the issues that they talk about um you know can be quite valuable and um you know, drawing on that when you kind of think about how how you speak. And I think also around um, different bits of social media as well. So I think we've talked a lot about Twitter, whereas actually, you know, most people are on social media, but not in the same way. So, you know, your sort of local community Facebook group where people will post once a week being like, oh, no, what bin is it today? Like that is probably the one you know, that all, you know, I found a, you know, purple coat in the park, you know, that's probably the group that will give you the best idea of what local people are thinking and caring about. So that's a really good one to be in and to listen to. Mm. Um, Or, you know, similarly, a a sort of slightly wider level, you know, there might be kind of sort of interest groups, you know, that, that will, you know, when they start talking about political issue, that is quite, you know, that's a bit of a flag that it's something to be interested in. Yeah. Um, And I think the other thing is that, you are going to have to go on social media some of the time as a politician. You know, we talked about the traction in reverse, like something becomes an issue on social media and then it kind of gets traction in real life. Like if we're trying to promote a policy, that's a good thing for us. If we can get it to have that traction and engagement, then it, and, and it can transfer into the real world. Brilliant. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, HQ and the press team are, are trying to do all the time. Um, but that means that for some of that engagement, we have to put ourselves into that position. And it's not always going to be a nice place to be. Yeah. So it's having um, sort of techniques for yourself so that you can engage safely. And, and whether that's having timeouts, whether that's having like, I have a little uh, WhatsApp group, which is, you know, when there's a problem on social media, anyone in the group can just kind of go, oh, there's a problem here. Can I just have a bit of help? Because just knowing that you've got a team behind you that have got your back, you know, and just like, no, it's OK, you're right. Even if they don't manage to deal with it, just having that kind of them immediately there going, yeah, we, we agree with you, we've got you. That that really is a supportive network for you. And I think having a break every now and then. So like I had a nice little Twitter break during the sort of um, national mourning period for the Queen's funeral. Like that was great. I'll probably do it again over Christmas. You know, just taking some time. And like I, I'm, 
you know terrible for kind of just like picking up my phone and flicking on twitter so like when i take a break what i'll usually do is i i will literally get my husband to change the password for me and not give it back to me until i tell it you know <laughs> so you know it is it, you know take a break and and really make sure you do take a break um is is always good advice as well i think i think that's a really good way of doing it because like it's so easy to put yourself in the mindset of but i have to like I'm losing something by not being, oh, I've missed something, I'm not on it. And actually doing the thing of taking a break reminds yourself that, yeah, it is a useful tool, mm. but it's not essential for every day. And, and that is such a good thing. Cool. So uh, to summarize, Twitter isn't real life and you should use it because it's great, but not all the time. And go out and find what the real things are that really make sense to people. And that's not what you always see on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. And um, yeah, I guess any listeners got any further tips, write in and let us know. Enjoy the more liberal Britain that we are in, even if you don't see it on social media. Yeah, enjoy the secret liberalism that is Britain. (laughs)